0: So I was driving to the co-op after work mm-hmm. and it was kind of stop and go traffic. It was on 4th Street and I looked up and on the car in front of me, do you know what I saw? What? Our faces.
1: I'm, wait, I'm, what do you mean our faces?
0: Hold on. I'm going to send you a photo.
1: Hold on. Where's my phone? Oh my God. Is that our sticker?
0: It's our <laughs> sticker. Just <laughs> randomly on the car in front of me. On 4th Street, so I don't know who that is, but you have my face on the back of your vehicle.
1: And my face, too.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to the 17th episode of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Lind.
1: I am Kayla Moria.
0: And we are a paranormal podcast out of Duluth, Minnesota. Whee! I don't know why I sang that.
1: (laughs) Uh, yeah, I don't either, but I liked it.
0: (laughs) I'm just in a really good mood, so I guess I'm just gonna sing everything. No, I'm into it. I'm
1: I'm always the one singing. It's nice to have you singing for a change.
0: Well, I still apologize in advance (laughs) for the... The listeners, I'm not great. Bear with me. It's because I'm in a good mood, though. <laughs>
1: hey, love it. Love being in a good mood. And how can you not be in a good mood? Because we're going to be really Minnesotan for a second and talk about the weather.
0: Oh my gosh. It is gorgeous outside.
1: It is 6.53 p.m. and it is still 79 degrees outside. That's fabulous. Like,
0: What? 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 Some years it's snowing still Like we've had blizzards during this time of the year And it's like 70 degrees outside and it's gorgeous I'm so
1: excited I'm always excited about this kind of stuff Makes me me happy, although I did get a sunburn And I'm trying really hard to stay out of the sun Because I don't do tan
0: No, I usually just burn right up I'm too pale My skin's like tan, what? No, (laughs) burn, that's what you do What are you thinking?
1: (laughs) So some exciting news coming up this week. I'm pretty excited to come over to your house and try my hand at editing this episode.
0: Yeah. Fun facts, everyone. Uh, Because my workload is going to be the same as it always has been. Kayla's is slightly less due to the summer holiday for her. We are going to split the editing. Yeah. Ah! So, yeah. Every other episode... We're just gonna switch it off so we we get to share the workload I gotta admit I'm kind of a type A personality and I don't know how I feel about letting go hey (laughs) hey I don't know how I feel about letting go of the reins which is why I'm we're making this announcement because I want to be like okay every other episode it's me
1: I don't know how I feel about taking over the reins because last night I was literally talking to Sean about this and I was Uh like so Brittany has a very different set of standards for sound than I do, and <laughs> um, I don't know that I'm going to catch everything she catches, so this will be an experiment.
0: Which is why we're prefacing this <laughs> every other episode. Uh, also, just people have different styles in editing, so if it comes off slightly different depending on which one of us is editing, that's that's normal,
1: mm-hmm. you know? Well, and so. you can hear that just in a lot of the different podcasts we listen to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like a bunch of the, a bunch of the conversational podcasts I listen to allow for a lot of talking over, and you're just kind of listening mm-hmm. to it, like you listen to every other conversation. And mm-hmm. then a lot of the more serious podcasts don't allow any talking over. I feel like we're kind of in the middle because I talk over you a lot, and you talk over me sometimes, and it's just the way we have a conversation. But
0: yeah.
1: it'll be interesting we to see talk- how it works out.
0: Yeah, we actually talk over each other significantly more than what you guys realize, because I usually edit a lot of it out. <laughs> Mostly just for clarity. Like, we'll often start a sentence and then restart it once the other person is done. And I'm like, you guys don't need to hear that part where I tried to say five words and then stopped and then waited and then reset them. Like, that just, you don't need to do that. Like, what? <laughs> so... So yeah, Adventures I'm in Editing. Adventures in Editing. Uh, I'm actually really excited. I went and bought a little splitter so that we can have it plugged into my computer and we can each be wearing our separate headphones because I was wondering how we're going to be able to, how am I supposed to teach you how to edit if you can't also hear it exactly the way that I can hear it? Yep. But I fixed it. I figured it out. I got it. No worries. I'm excited.
1: All right. Yeah. Next subject do you realize that we are a little bit less than two months away from your first convention ever?
0: <gasps> it's coming up so quickly. I
1: know. I'm so proud. I'm like a proud mama, mama bear.
0: Proud mama conventioner.
1: <laughs> uh, talk to Crystal and Corey of the Twin Ports Horror Society, and they are mm-hmm. ordered our bookmarks. So we'll have some bookmarks awesome. there to give away. Fantastic. And we probably should hop on that merch train. We'll figure out some stuff there soon.
0: Yeah, it can take up to two months sometimes, depending on where you order from. Yep. Especially since, like, supply situation. So we should really get on that.
1: And if we don't have any merch, then we'll still hang out there and it'll be a good time.
0: Exactly. We'll have stickers or something. It's fine.
1: For those who have not heard us talk about this before, the ParaUnity Convention is a supernatural convention supernatural like paranormal not the tv show (laughs) it's a paranormal convention here in duluth it's going to be happening at the deck on july 9th and 10th and they did just release a announcement governor walls governor of minnesota Mm -hmm. has now listed that any indoor event capacity limitations will end on may 28th and on july 1st minnesota will get rid of the mask mandate so it's weird but it's weird. Good. It's been over a year without masks or with masks. It's been over a year with masks. And mm-hmm. so I don't know how to feel about it. I might mm-hmm. wear my mask and yeah. like I can take it down and put it up because I know the people we're sitting with at the uh table are also vaccinated. So we're a vaccinated mm-hmm. group of people. I'm gonna kinda feel it out. I'm gonna encourage everybody to do the same. If you don't feel comfortable going someplace maskless, wear your mask.
0: Yeah. And I know that a lot of people have really jumping on the whole no mask thing i however when i go into public places still wear mine. me too and a lot of the places i've gone into since it was lifted um they're like choose your own adventure masked or unmasked <laughs> and i still i still wear mine and i don't know I'd, I'd rather be safe than sorry i guess
1: we want to encourage everybody to be happy and be safe and so you do you you boo
0: you do you, boo.
1: Well, if you are interested in going to the Minnesota Para Unity Convention, you can visit mnparacon.com. So that's M is in Mary, N is in Nancy, P-A-R-A-C-O-N.com. And you can purchase your tickets there for either single day or the whole weekend. Nice. Nice. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to talk to you about this. I mean, hmm? how was your week? Um, It's pretty uneventful in a good way. Oh, nice. His work was really busy. Summertime always is. Mm-hmm. We're starting some projects around the house. We've got a slight ant problem in the house that we're figuring out. That's brand new. They're getting no. in the bathroom somehow. I don't know. Uh, it's not like an a obscene bummer. amount of ants. It's just like every once in a while we'll find like three.
0: I mean, but that's still not great. Because once you see one or two or three, like that could just be the beginning.
1: Yeah. Uh, but that was pretty much my week. What about your week?
0: I got to go see my mom.
1: Yay!
0: For the first time, okay, I saw her in December for, like, 10 minutes masked and separated, and it was actually really heartbreaking because when I went to go see her, I went to go drop off Christmas presents and pick them up, and then I drove down to my sister's, and we did, like, the masked-separated, like, present exchange. Mm -hmm. I just drove across the state of Minnesota and back trying to deliver everyone's gifts, and um, she said this really, really sad thing where she was like sitting six feet away from me and she's like could do you think we could hug and I was like oh mom you're like super high risk I'm not gonna play that game with you I don't know what I would do if I gave you COVID for some reason even though I had isolated and I'd taken the test beforehand I'm like I'm not gonna not gonna play that game but my brother and I had plotted out for the last two weeks on surprising her oh so she didn't know I was coming So he knew that I was just a couple blocks away and he lured her outside and then he like lured her around the side of the house because he saw me and I grabbed the box of wine I brought her for her Mother's Day present (laughs) and I like creeped up behind her and she turned around and I went, happy Mother's Day. And she went, "Uh, uh, uh, Brit, (laughs) what are you doing here? I was like, I'm here for Mother's Day. A week late. (laughs) Yeah
1: that's so cute
0: i know and i would have gone on mother's day but we had been around so many people during homegrown that i i didn't feel comfortable doing that so i actually went and got tested last week came back negative i'm like okay good to go let's do it nice
1: very cool
0: Mm -hmm. well it was fun
1: happy mother's day Brittany's mom and happy Mother's Day to my mom and to all the moms who listen. Happy belated Mother's Day. Yeah, my
0: sister's a mom. Happy Mother's Day, sister.
1: Oh, both my sisters are moms. Happy Mother's Day, sisters. Oh my gosh, we know so many moms. We know so many moms. Oh, jeez. <laughs> we just, oh, geez. Oh, one other thing that happened this last week that I'm excited about. Mm-hmm. I got my first tarot deck.
0: <gasps> you have to do a reading for me. I've only ever had it done once and it was lovely but I want someone to do it now because I'm in an entirely different place in my life.
1: I certainly can. I'm still practicing and working on it mm-hmm. doing readings for myself mostly and getting familiar with the deck. So yeah, I, I'm still getting used to it, but I'm excited to give it a shot. And on TikTok, do you get those tarot reading TikToks?
0: I do. They They pull a card and they're like, if you're seeing this, you were meant to. And then they tell me about what the card is. And what What's coming for me
1: next week? I would like to try doing one of those for the podcast.
0: Yes, please. I'm going to so tune pull in. a
1: card with the intention of reading for our listeners. So we'll give it a shot. And if it's a terrible card, we might just cut it out of the episode, but hopefully not.
0: <laughs> yeah, we just won't let you know if it's a terrible card. We have that power. We
1: have that's with we the, are the editors, with the editing. <laughs>
0: That's why it's great to edit and take stuff like that out.
1: Exactly. So we've covered the Para Unity Convention. We've covered my attempts at tarot cards and my attempts at editing. There's a lot of attempts going on this week. And now I'm going to attempt to tell you my story. Oh, see how I, good? See how I? Uh, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: That it was. It's what they call a segue. Yeah, I was
1: racking my <laughs> brain for a segue, and that is what I came up with. All right, well, Brittany. I want you uh-huh. to get a theme song in your head that you know, you know well. Mm-hmm. I want you to get that X-Files music, that theme music ready in your brain.
0: Okay, I went straight for Full House,
1: but X-Files, okay. And what I can world do is the story <laughs> I would tell you have anything to do with Full House?
0: I don't know. I didn't necessarily go with what was your story was about. You're just like, get a theme song the in your head. And, and I was like- boy
1: evening tv yeah
0: exactly that's it's where i went no immediately okay x-files x-files music i got that all right i got it (whistles) i was terrible whistling okay (whistles) sorry yeah yeah
1: all right this week we're gonna talk about the ellsworth air force base
0: i do not know what that is all right
1: okay so i want you to picture this it's midsummer and it's 1952 Got the scenery in your head. Wearing the skirt. Got my hair and curls. Okay, I'm there. You've got the night off, and you and your date have got big plans for the evening. Relaxing at a drive-in theater. Making out. Okay, well, you went there, not me. (laughs) It's a beautiful night, and lucky for you, you live in South Dakota. So it's hot, but not too hot. And the skies are clear and beautiful. So clear you can see all the stars. Glowing, gorgeous, and orange and moving. (sighs) <sighs> that's not right as quickly as you see them the next moment they're gone this is the situation a young airman and his date found themselves in one evening of July 17, 1952 he was stationed at the Ellsworth Air Force Base located just northeast of Rapid City, South Dakota while sitting on their date at a drive-in movie theater with the windows rolled down he saw a series of orange colored discs glowing he estimated they were floating about twelve to 15,000 feet above the ground As an airman, he's pretty good at guessing.
0: I was going to say, I can't even, like, tell you how tall people are. I am very impressed with his ability to guesstimate.
1: So this was an experienced airman. He, He knew what he was talking about. He stated that they lit up like light bulbs, but traveled at several times the speed of a jet fighter based on their movements. He and his date both saw them, and then within five or six seconds, they were gone again disappeared over the eastern skyline. The next morning, the airman reported what he saw to a superior officer, who began an official inquiry into the incident. An Air Force intelligence officer interrogated the airman, evaluated his character, and filled out a spot intelligence report. The investigating officer forwarded the completed dossier to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base at Dayton, Ohio, noting that the airman had previous experience as an aircrew member and that he presently worked in armaments and electronics. His superiors considered him reliable, and there was no question that he thought he had seen a UFO.
0: Okay.
1: Officials at Wright-Patterson transferred his data to a White Project record card, which is a form that's filled out to contain information about a sighting. It includes the date, location, type of observation, length of time, along with like a brief summary of the incident. An official who was probably a civilian consultant study the material, and he had the option of either positively identifying a UFO, classifying it as unknown, or indicating that there was insufficient evidence for a confirmation. The white card contained a convenient-like checklist, so to designate the UFO as an airplane, all the evaluator had to do was check the appropriate box. After studying the incident, now called the Rapid City Outdoor Theater Incident, he concluded that reports similar to this have turned out to be ducks. Ducks? Like, quack quack duck.
0: Er okay so i'm no duck expert (laughs) you might have thought that maybe i was but i am not um i have never once seen a duck light up like a light bulb (laughs) fun fact
1: so yes they ended the investigation a clerk filed away the results which were classified for three years and then downgraded over the next 12 for what became case 1479
0: well yeah the duck incident of course of
1: course you know rapid city outdoor theater ducks it all makes sense if this were the only ufo report around ellsworth air force base we might just accept this conclusion
0: i wouldn't have ever accepted ducks
1: okay well you wouldn't have but maybe we would have (laughs) accepted something like it's a glowing orange duck but it doesn't just stop here (laughs) okay there are many well-documented cases of ufo sightings near the base and i don't just mean documented like a news article, or a blog article online. Mm -hmm. I mean officially, governmentally documented in Project Blue Book.
0: Oh, another Project Blue Book thing.
1: Yes. So uh, I'm not sure if the listeners remember or not, but I have mentioned Project Blue Book in Episode 9 when I talked about the 1953 Kinross incident out of Michigan. But if you're unaware, Project Blue Book is the code name for the systematic study of unidentified flying objects by the United States Air Force. It began in March of 1952 and was terminated on December 17th of 1969. The project, headquartered at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, which is where I mentioned in that previous story, Mm -hmm. it was initially directed by Captain Edward J. Ruppelt and followed projects of similar nature, such as Project Sign, which was in 1947, and Project Grudge, which was in 1948. Project Blue Book had two goals, namely to determine if UFOs were a threat to national security and to scientifically analyze UFO-related data. Anyway, on to the additional sightings. Um, that was enough about Project Blue Book. It's There's so much <laughs> we could go into it, and I'm sure it will come up many times again in this podcast, because I love it. Yeah, you love your aliens. I do love aliens. So this Air Force Base specifically has seen so much activity that some people online refer to it as the Area 51 of South Dakota. What? So here are some of the incidences that happen at Elworth Air Force Base. Okay. At White Lake on the 14th of August in 1952, a member of the Ground Observer Corps spotted what he said looked like a stick or a cigar that at intervals belched smoke and vapor. After 30 minutes, it moved rapidly away to the west. And then officers labeled the case file secret, probably because the observer said he had saw a missile that had strayed off course, but there's no confirmation of a missile anywhere near there.
0: Wait, I'm sorry. There was a stick that could have also been a cigar. Are you talking about in the sky or on the ground? In the sky. Oh, okay. So he was just describing the shape of it.
1: Exactly. Yep. And it it, it belched? It's Yeah. It said that at intervals it belched a smoke and vapor. And then okay. it was there for 30 minutes. It rapidly moved away to the west. They labeled it a secret because they said the observer might thought it might have been a missile that had straight off course. But they don't... Oh,
0: because that's what missiles do. These people don't know common objects. They don't know what ducks look like. <laughs> they don't understand missiles. They just go straight up and down. Like,
1: what is this hanging out and belching? They're trying to come up with an explanation. So this case was labeled 2089. Okay. Um, on the night of September 2nd, 1952, Two B-36 flight crew engineers stationed at Ellsworth reported UFOs that moved slowly in a circular pattern, and that's all they saw. Just an unidentified flying object moving slowly in a circular pattern. The evaluator decided that there was not enough information about this occurrence to make any determinations anyway, and this became case 2027. Like, as long as they're
0: not assuming it's a cigar or a duck. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine.
1: On March 3rd of 1957, two airmen at Rapid City saw rays that seemed to slant outward in a circular pattern, and the lights changed colors and moved slowly. Blue Book Investigation said that there was insufficient information, although a notation speculated that the men had seen northern lights. So for our listeners that are not familiar with northern lights, they do not slant outward in a circular pattern. The northern lights are the northern lights.
0: They're like rainbow
1: waves in the sky they're beautiful but there's no yeah okay this became case 4638 and then blue book made the same decision about a ufo that an airman said he watched near leeds south dakota for half an hour he had tracked a large multicolored vehicle that flashed brilliantly as it flew through the night but a blue book consultant noted that it was Probably an astronomical object viewed under atmospheric conditions to give flashes, a.k.a. northern lights.
0: I accept that answer more than any of the other ones, but (laughs) I still say aliens, but whatever, okay. However,
1: (laughs) the position, both elevation and coloring, of the object are not included in the report, therefore no identification of an object could be made. That was case 6799.
0: It seems like if you're going to try and decide what something is, having a little bit more detail as to what it looks like would be very handy.
1: But details would be great, except these guys are giving details. These are reports from the people witnessing it, and they can't come up with a better explanation because they don't know what they're seeing.
0: Yeah, that's true. Okay.
1: Okay. The reason I keep mentioning these case numbers, too, is because that's pointing out that these were all documented. So there's multiple cases all in the same area in the Dakotas.
0: Oh, so it's not hearsay. These are
1: these are documented actual cases via the government. Yep, cool. On March 3rd, 1967, case 11461, someone claimed to have detected a flying saucer moving along down over Gettysburg, and the analyst said that no basis existed for a definite judgment, but the the person just said UFO and said flying saucer. So, right they're at this point now granted this is 67 a lot of the ones we're talking about in the 50s there's probably a lot more speculation at this point about aliens but right we have nothing to go on but the observers mention and these are military members it's not like they're people that are trying to just come up with something out of nowhere right um so basically it seems that a lot of the conclusions in most of these cases depended more or less on the whims of the blue book evaluator Rather than mm-hmm. any sort of weight of evidence, the evaluators could have said in almost every instance that not enough information was known for appraisal. So, this was one of the unavoidable pitfalls involved in UFO research. And uh, mm-hmm. they just, you can always come up with something to like explain it away, something like ducks or cigars.
0: I will never accept ducks. <laughs> Unless they're in a V formation and they're quacking or they're hockey players. Exactly.
1: But some cases are so well documented and have so many witnesses that you know there is no way it's just Northern Lights, Ducks, hockey players, cigars, or sticks. On August 5th and August 6th of 1953, what has now become known as the Ellsworth case occurred and became one of the most significant radar visual cases in the history of UFO sightings. Ooh. The event was witnessed by almost 45 citizens, along with military air defense system personnel. Whoa. The object was first sighted by a woman named Miss Killian at 8 p.m. on August 5th, and the description at that point was of a red glowing light making long sweeping movements and then it was spotted by the military, who started to send out reports. Mm -hmm. This information was transmitted to the Bismarck, North Dakota Air Defense Filter Center. Sometime later, a sergeant spotted the objects from the roof of the building he was working at. He observed, paying close attention to the irregular movements as it danced between telephone lines. Others on duty saw the moving lights, which would be visible in the night sky for approximately three whole hours. The sergeant described his observance in the following manner. It would remain stationary, then hop several degrees very quickly, almost simultaneously. Another witness commented it would stop, move to the left, and then swerve down in a sort of slanting motion, repeating those maneuvers several times. Okay. Our listeners can't see it, but Brittany and I are making hand motions of swerving. It's it's really helpful on a I podcast.
0: L- <laughs> I, look like a, I look like a band conductor, you know. There you go.
1: A report from Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, who was the former director of Project Blue Book, as I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. stated that he first heard about these sightings at about 2 o'clock in the morning on August 11th, 1953. So, five days later. A wire had come in carrying a priority message flashing the word that stood for the U.S. had been attacked. Oh, dear. They called Ruppelt because after reading the report, they thought that he should read it. Ruppelt said... I was a little hesitant to get dressed and go out to the base, so I asked Max, who was the gentleman he was communicating with, mm-hmm. I asked Max what he thought about the report. His classic answer will go down in UFO history. Captain, Max said in his slow, pure Louisiana drawl, which I tried to practice for this podcast and I cannot, so i going to try, <laughs> try it. Can't do it. Okay. <laughs> he said, You know that for a year I've read every flying saucer report that's come in and I never really believed the things? and then he hesitated and added so fast that i could hardly understand him but you have to read this wire
0: oh dear the speed okay. with
1: which he uttered this last statement was in itself enough to convince Ruppelt that when max talked fast something was important a half an hour later he got a call from the pentagon indicating that oh. somebody else important had gotten out of bed to read the wire as well He used his emergency orders that he always kept on his desk and caught the first airliner out of Dayton to Rapid City, South Dakota, so that he could investigate for himself.
0: You know, I gotta say, it doesn't really instill me with a lot of confidence that he had something come across his desk that basically said, the United States is under attack, and he's like, I mean, do I really gotta put pants on? (laughs) Like, (laughs) really? Just, what does it say?
1: Well, it's the 50s, the time of Mad Men. Okay. I don't, I don't know. The only thing that I can reference for the 50s is Mad Men. I don't know anything else about it. Um, Look, I don't care how hungover you are. If,
0: if there is an attack, you get up and you put on <laughs> pants.
1: Shortly after dark on the night of the 12th, so the next day, the Air Defense Command Radar Station at Ellsworth had received a call from the local Ground Observer Corps Filter Center. A lady spotter at Black Hawk, which is also in the Dakotas, about 10 miles west of Ellsworth, had reported an extremely bright light low on the horizon off to the northeast. Lights had returned. Oh. The radar had been scanning an area to the west, working on a jet fighter doing some practice patrols, but when they got the report, they moved the sector scan to the northeast quadrant, and there was a target exactly where the lady reported the light to be. The warrant officer, who was the duty controller for the night, said that he'd studied the target for several minutes. He knew how weather could affect the radar, but this target was well-defined, solid, and bright. It seemed to be moving, but very slowly. He called for an altitude reading, and it was at 16,000 feet. Is that
0: high or lower? I don't know. Okay.
1: (laughs) Okay. The warrant officer picked up the phone and asked the filter center to connect him with the spotter. They did, and the two people compared notes on the UFO's position for several minutes. But right in the middle of a sentence, the lady suddenly stopped and excitedly said, It's starting to move. It's moving southwest towards Rapid. <gasps> the controller looked down at his scope, and the target was beginning to pick up speed and move southwest. He yelled at two of his men to run outside and take a look. In the second or two, one of them shouted back that they could see a large bluish-white light moving towards Rapid City. The controller looked down at his scope, and the target was moving in that same direction. All three parties watched the light and kept up a steady cross conversation of the description the ufo swiftly made a wide sweep around rapid city and returned to its original position in the sky so this is three people one outside and two on radar in two different positions all monitoring it and getting the same report it's not ducks guys not ducks not ducks a master sergeant who had seen and heard the happenings told Rapelt that in all his years of duty combat radar operations in both Europe and Korea, he'd never been so completely awed by anything. When the warrant officer had yelled down at him and asked him what he thought they should do, he just stood there. After all, he told me, what in the hell could we do? They're bigger what than you us. What are we supposed to
0: do? Yeah. <laughs> we don't even know what it is. But then is the warrant literally... officer
1: did do something. Oh He called to the F-84 pilot he had on combat air patrol west of the base and told him to get ready for an intercept. How would you like to be that pilot?
0: <laughs> hey, there's something coming at ya. He, be ready.
1: He brought the pilot around south of the base and gave him a course correction that would take him right into the light, which was still at 16,000 feet. By this time, the pilot had it spotted in the air. He made the turn, and when he closed, within about 3 miles of the target, it began to move. The controller saw it begin to move, and the spotter saw it begin to move, and the pilot saw it begin to move, so again, 3 people, all verifying the movement. There was now no doubt that all of them were watching the same object. Once it began to move, the UFO picked up speed fast, started to climb heading north, but the F-84 was right on its tail. The pilot would notice that the light was getting brighter as it moved. And he'd call the controller to tell him about it, but the controller's answer would always be the same. Roger, we can see it on the scope. Right. There was always a limit to how near the jet could get, though. The controller told Ruppelt that it was as if the UFO had some sort of an automatic warning radar or something. Because as soon as something got too close to it, it would automatically pick up speed and pull away. The separation distance always remained about three miles. The chase continued on north, out of sight, and then much out of the lights of Rapid City and away from the base into some very, very black night. When the UFO and the F-84 got about 120 miles to the north, the pilot checked his fuel, and he had to come back. Rapelt talked to him later. He said that the pilot was damn glad that he was running out of fuel because being out over desolate country alone with a UFO can, quote-unquote, cause some worry.
0: Yeah, hard pass, yo.
1: (laughs) So... Both the UFO and the F-84 had gone off the scope, but in a few minutes, the jet was back on because it was turning back. It needed fuel. Mm -hmm. And then about 10 or 15 miles behind it, the UFO target was also coming back. No. While the UFO and the F-84 were returning to the base, the F-84 was planning to land. The controller received a call from the Jet Interceptor Squadron on the base. The alert pilots at the squadron had heard a conversation on their radio and didn't believe it. And asked them who's nuts up there what because these are people that had heard this conversation weren't actively involved in this pursuit right and they said that they had heard that there was an f-84 ready to scramble and one of the pilots a world war two and korean veteran wanted to go up there and see a flying saucer and so the controller just said okay go basically these people wanted to go up and also see the flying saucer because they don't have sense
0: i was gonna say they okay
1: In a minute or two, another F-84 was airborne, and the controller was working him towards the light. Pilot saw it right away and closed in. Again, the light began to climb out, this time more towards the northeast, and the pilot also began to climb. And before long, the light, which first had been about 30 degrees above his horizontal line of sight, was now below him. Uh, So he nosedived the 84 down and picked up speed, trying to catch up to it, But as soon as he'd get within three miles of the UFO, it would put on a burst of speed and stay out ahead. So even though the pilot could see the light and hear the ground controller telling him that he was above it, or alternatively gaining on it and dropping back, he still couldn't believe it. There must've been a simple explanation. Like he has all this evidence in front of him and he's still trying to deny it.
0: Because things don't move like that. Mm -hmm.
1: He turned off all his lights to make sure it wasn't a reflection from any of the airplane's lights. You could get a reflection on the glass. But there was no reflection. He rolled the airplane and the position of the light didn't change. Uh, he picked out three bright stars to try to see if it was maybe like some sort of weird concept of a star. Uh-huh. And if it's a real object out there, he thought, my radar should pick it up too. So he flipped on his radar and sure enough, in a few seconds, the red light on his sight blinked on. So it this was something real and solid and all of his trying to debunk it was not working. It was right in front of him. And then he was scared. And this is the guy who was on the ground, who's like, I want to go see a UFO. Yep. So, when Ruppelt talked to him, he readily admitted that he had been scared. He'd met enemies in Germany and Korea, but the large, bright, bluish-white light scared him, and he was willing to admit it because he had tried everything to get rid of, to explain it, it away. Yeah. And it, it, he couldn't explain it away. So... Up in the sky, he asked the controller if he could break off the intercept. It was granted, and he turned back to the base, and this time the light did not follow them back. Well, that's good. So when the UFO went off the scope, it was headed towards Fargo, North Dakota. So the controller called the Fargo Filter Center and asked if they'd had any reports of unidentified lights, and they hadn't. But in a few minutes, a call came back, A spotter posts on a southwest line a few miles west of Fargo had reported a fast-moving, bright, bluish-white light, and that was the last report of it.
0: But it didn't make it to Fargo.
1: No, they reported it in Fargo. Oh, okay. So this sighting was thoroughly investigated, and Repelt could have devoted pages and pages of detail. He said it right in his thing. He said, I could Uh have devoted pages of detail and how they looked in every facet of the incident, but... In every facet they looked, they saw nothing concrete. Nothing but a big question mark asking what it was. They have no explanations for this. No ducks, no cigars, no northern lights. So I was reading that and got goosebumps because I love aliens and I want to believe. And that's the most solid story I've ever read, which led me to share the stories of the Ellsworth Air Force Base with the podcast today.
0: That was fantastic. Thank you. You're welcome.
1: On a scale, a skeptic scale, paranormal. Uh-huh. Where would you uh-huh. put it? Four point
0: five.
1: Ooh, I think that'd be my highest highest rating from you yet. It is. It is.
0: I. I mean, I'm an X Files girl through and through. And yeah,
1: when I was looking this up, I actually ran across that first story I shared, uh-huh. um, the drive-in theater one, and I would have given it like a three but yeah after reading through and like thoroughly reading through that project blue book stuff about the ellsworth air force base i'm I'm gonna give it a four but
0: i think um how happy do you think that first pilot was when the thing was following him and then one of his buddies was like oh i want to see it and then he's like okay see ya sweet i can land now peace out you go see you go see what that is i don't wanna i'm almost out of gas oh no well, I actually have for you today a listener request. Mm. I know.
1: I must have missed and that one coming through the email. I didn't see that one.
0: Oh, it didn't come through the email. It came through Facebook Messenger. Oh, cool. But like my Facebook Messenger. Oh, cool. It was a personal request.
1: You're so popular, Brittany. I know. I know.
0: I know. <laughs> um, anyway, it's it's kind of short. There's not a lot of information about it. But tonight, I'm going to tell you about Doveland, Wisconsin. Okay. And if you've never heard of Doveland, Wisconsin, that makes sense, uh, because it doesn't actually exist. What? Or at least it doesn't anymore, because the whole town, supposedly, somehow disappeared sometime in the 1990s.
1: Oh, so recently. Yeah,
0: 1990s. I mean, recent based upon our perception of time. Within our lifetime. Maybe not some of our younger listeners and if they want to point out how long ago the 90s was i don't want to hear it
1: (laughs) no that's my job
0: (laughs) so dublin by the few accounts that you can find online was a small town in wisconsin and by most of those accounts it was primarily inhabited by military personnel and their families working on something called project sanguine one internet recounting of the town states quote i just learned all of this noise around dublin and i think i can add some insight So, Doveland was a small town in Wisconsin that housed a lot of military families. My father lived there for a year or two and spoke of it occasionally. And the main thing that I remember is that it had to do with Project Sanguine in the early 1960s. I don't think it was X-Files type stuff, but the town was destroyed after an incident. I thought they were digging up a ton of land for something and they flooded the town or something. Uh, But this is just a rehashed secondhand memory from years ago. So, Project Sanguine... Wikipedia, was a U.S. Navy project proposed in 1968 for communication with submerged submarines using extremely low frequency, or ELF, radio waves. And the proposed system, which would have required a giant antenna covering two-fifths of the state of Wisconsin, was to be hardy enough to withstand even a nuclear attack. But, because of protests and potential environmental impacts, the proposed system was never implemented. Project Sanguine apparently never came to fruition, but this user is not the only one to mention it or Doveland as a real part of their family's history. Another user said, quote, I think you make a good point, but Doveland was very real. My father used to mention it occasionally before he passed. And the only reason why I remember it is because I found it ironic that a town named Doveland was populated by almost exclusively military personnel and their families. I will dig around for a shirt when I get back home next in early September. If I remember correctly, the town was built as part of Project Sanguine in the mid to late 1960s. Maybe everyone left when the project was canceled, but I thought that something went wrong and you can really only dig up that much turf for so long before you're bound to have problems. Now, it's not unheard of for a town to come into existence for a specific purpose, such as a government project. Nor is it unheard of that something could go terribly wrong with such a project. But according to one user, this is not likely to be the case with Doveland. Quote, the locations for Doveland don't coincide with Project Sanguine, aka Project Elf, due to the bedrock. There are two Elf sites no longer in operation, with one being outside of Clam Lake, Wisconsin, and the other up in the UP. These are extremely low-frequency transmitters that use the bedrock to bounce signals under the crust to signal nuclear submarines to service to receive action messages. The antennas were above ground and would look a lot like power lines running through the middle of the forest. If the antennas were buried, they would be shorted out by the ground earth and be useless. They also say... I'm an amateur radio operator, so this is second nature to me. Mm -hmm. There's nothing sci-fi about Sanguine and nothing that could cause an incident where a town would simply just disappear. Mm -hmm. While there are instances like the accounts above that talk about how Dublin was a very real place that once existed, there are also just as many naysayers, like Nate Allen, who says, quote, As someone who's lived in various places in Wisconsin for over 30 years and has been in the Army, never once has a single person ever mentioned Dublin. And, you know the fact that there's literally nothing about it online and were it to have existed you'd imagine you'd be able to find something about it but i know what you're thinking Brittany. that guy said that he totally had a dublin shirt lying around somewhere that he was gonna find next time he was home in september and you know what he's not the only one there are supposedly other t-shirts and mugs like the ones you'd find at small town coffee shops Mm -hmm. that are just floating around out there proving that Doveland does exist, or did exist. Which brings us to the first theory to explain the disappearance of the town of Dublin, Wisconsin. All that merch that came from <laughs> Dublin, Wisconsin. <laughs> However, according to Obscurban Legends Wiki, quote, It has been suggested that the t-shirts and mugs associated with Dublin might be examples of bot-generated advertisement based upon users' recent search history. Or like the Dublin mask with the deer on it that I actually found earlier online today. Someone probably heard of the legend and just ran with it, creating their own merch for it.
1: Okay. But like, how would they explain old merch?
0: I actually don't have an explanation for that because it sounds like this guy, the original guy who talked about his t-shirt, probably got it from his dad Mm
1: -hmm. who
0: worked there in the military in the 1960s. Okay, okay. But that's just what this website said. This is one of their... Theories. I'm not saying it's all accurate. Okay. They're just theories. Okay. Other theories include that Dublin was a town or an unincorporated settlement that was destroyed by damming, which is something that does happen. There's actually a different city in Wisconsin that they named. I actually once drove through a sunken town in South Dakota. Mm -hmm. It's like the road was raised, but like everything below it in the water was actually an entire town that they just, they dammed it. They flooded it. Mm -hmm. That was the end of it. Or... Perhaps it was a town, but due to a failing economy, because sometimes that just happens, or because a military project was no longer there, the town just kind of dwindled down into nothing. Though one would think that if either of these last two things would have been the case for why Dublin no longer exists, that there would still be some sort of a record of it. Or maybe it's just a hoax. A tall tale. An internet legend. Mm -hmm. The lack of evidence and information on Dublin could be explained by a cover-up, Uh, but more plausible it could just be a mass delusion or an urban legend but if it is part of a cover-up perhaps this disappearance was caused by a military science experiment gone wrong or aliens i do love aliens or perhaps it just vanished right out of thin air and then there's my favorite theory which is actually an example of hyperstition which essentially means that it once started as a story or an urban legend But the more people talked about it, the more it kind of became a sort of reality. Mm -hmm. Because as one user said, quote, the freaky bit is how many people in my family from Wisconsin say they remember Dublin. Okay, And that is the story of Dublin, Wisconsin. It was short and sweet and brought to you by Ginger.
1: All right. On the skeptic scale, Mm -hmm. I'm going to give that two. And here's why. There's not all that much paranormal about it to me. Mm -mm. I do think it's freaky, and I don't like the idea that a whole town would disappear. But regularly, I drive from Duluth, Minnesota to Moston, Wisconsin. And there are so many tiny, tiny, tiny towns that are unincorporated that if they didn't exist anymore, I don't know that I would notice on my drive. Because they don't even have gas stations that I could stop at, or any businesses at all it's usually just like a tiny little town with some farms or something so if there's a reason for it to go away like if buildings burned down or a dam flooded I've never heard of a dam flooding a whole place but you know that's probably a way they used to get rid of some stuff mm-hmm. so I don't know that it's paranormal but I don't like that a whole town could just disappear
0: yeah I am also going to give it a two okay and I actually I really appreciate Ginger for suggesting that I do this one because I thought it was interesting and also, in my research, I found that there are a couple of towns in the United States that seem to perhaps existed, mm-hmm. but don't, and no one can find them, but people remember them,
1: which is the case with Dublin. It's like the Mandela effect of a town.
0: Yes, it is very similar to the Mandela effect. Um, yeah, between the Mandela effect and the hyperstition.
1: But sometimes the Mandela effect turns out to be real like everybody was talking about that movie shazam like you know there's shazam and kazam kazam has Shaq. shazam has sinbad the comedian but like and there's one point where sinbad was even saying this movie doesn't exist he starred in it and everybody got to this point where they're like okay we have this collective memory of this thing that never existed because we've been like gaslighted into thinking that this this movie doesn't exist and then somebody on tiktok digs through all their old VHSs and finds out that this movie actually does exist.
0: Lies. What? No. Well, you didn't really? know that? I'm going
1: to send you this. Yeah. No. no. Shazam happened with Sinbad. It was a movie. It's not a Mandela effect, like it's real. So, in that same line, this town probably existed and everybody else is just so eager to forget it that they don't want to acknowledge that it was real, but it's real. We know. We know. Me and you right here, we know.
0: I mean, I don't know.
1: Okay, we yeah, have we don't know. I'm
0: not sure. I'm not sure but i'm I, I, I
1: stand with the people who say this town was real
0: I think that you make a very good point about the the merch though is that unless it's new in the last like 10 years or something like that there's no way that it's internet algorithms
1: and also from the 90s what reason would this dad have to lie about where he got this shirt from right no reason
0: and to say that he spent like a year or two there doing this project seguin mm-hmm
1: I don't know. And just because we're a paranormal podcast, and this does not necessarily rate high on the skeptic scale, does not mean it's not interesting. Because that was fascinating, and now I want to look more into disappearing towns. So, on that note, I do have a listener story for you. Let's hear it. Sweet. And I said on that note, there's no note. I just... Again, as we discussed earlier, I'm terrible at segues, so... (laughs) And my, when in doubt, say on that note. So. (laughs) It is actually usually, I think, how you start the. uh, It is how I start things because I don't know what else to do. On that note. If anybody has any suggestions for me, please send them. I would love it because I need to be better. (laughs) So we received this via our email. Hey, Brittany and Kayla, here's a long winded visitor story for you. I love long-winded visitor stories or listener stories, but same thing. Same. If it's too scary or long or people don't want to believe it, it's easily skepticaled away by the fact that it does involve me having a night terror or a sleep pattern I've experienced my whole life. If you're unfamiliar with that term, it's the light sleep pattern most alien abductions are debunked as. Basically, I wake up enough to see the room I'm in, but I can't move. I continue to dream, often nightmarish things that are in the room with me, but I can't move and get scared, and it's super hard to wake up. When I was young, I would scream at the top of my lungs, and to my mom's terror, she couldn't wake me up from this state.
0: Oh, gosh.
1: As an adult, I found focusing on my breathing or something physical in the room can help me pull out of this. I've never been lucky enough to be abducted by aliens during this, but often I've been laying still trying not to startle the woman-hungry wolves circling my bed or laying still trying not to alert the shadow figure or home intruder that i'm in the bed
0: i like how she said lucky enough not wait not lucky enough to be abducted by aliens you know what
1: if i would be abducted by aliens if it meant i wasn't like if it meant i wasn't bothering the woman hungry wolves or alert shadow figures because you know i love shadows
0: oh and love a good intruder Every woman just wants an intruder in her room.
1: (laughs) So anyway, so that was our listeners explanation of their night terrors. Mm. So this night I was staying in a former nursing home in some teeny town on the White Earth Reservation, nearish to where Paracon used to be. It was a town so small that there wasn't really a hotel or anything for guests to stay in but they allowed people to rent rooms for visiting relatives super cheap in this old nursing home. It was the second time I'd stayed there, on a cot, in the room with my mom. We were the only people in the building. I kept waking up to someone violently shaking the foot of my bed. Each time I checked to see if the cot was broken or if my legs were dangling off of it. Nope, it was just Uh strange the last time i felt this violent movement i didn't completely wake up i was in a night terror in this state i felt the back edge of my cot compress as though someone was getting onto the bed with me there was a tightening around my arms and chest like someone was hugging me close from behind okay and the scariest part warm breath on my ear repeatedly audibly sighing like this person was so happy to find me in bed oh god okay and they Ew. just kept sighing like that okay that's gross it was startling and creepy but the repeated sigh and warm hug made me momentarily wonder if my husband had somehow driven to this tiny town broken into the nursing home and climbed into hug me and sigh happily that's cute one can only dream <laughs> it felt that strangely comfortable but reality sunk in more, and I tried to move to escape this person's grasp or even nudge alert them that I wasn't their spouse and this was not welcome affection. I was laying on my side, and all I could see in the darkness was the foot of the bed that my mom was staying in and the shadow of her sleeping under the blankets. I could hear her snoring, or as she says, Men snore at Ladies breathe heavily. <laughs> But the sound and pattern was something I hadn't heard in years, and it's worth noting that not the same rhythm as the sighing. Even my own breath and pulse were a different pattern than the sighing. I associated mom's pattern with having nightmares as a kid and climbing into her bed for the rest of the night. I focused on her sounds and that loving childhood memory rather than what was happening around me. And that's how I was able to pull myself awake enough to escape the creeper. I've never had a night terror quite like that before particularly the touching me part. That's not normal. It really felt like something was going on. You love when ghosts touch you, don't you? I'm just making the most upset face. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just so, so unhappy about that story. Thanks for reading Anne-Marie. Pronouns she, her. Snazzy McSnazerson's unassigned task. That's from my, uh, my scavenger hunt. Oh, I am so sorry, Anne-Marie, I did not catch this uh, before the scavenger hunt, but if I had, you would have gotten ten whole points for that story, because I have goosebumps. I am not jealous of you for that experience, and I loved that story.
0: I didn't like
1: it. (laughs) That was... Okay, for those who uh, are not me and cannot see Brittany right now, she is huddled in a ball on her chair she's so uncomfortable with Anne i'm so right uncomfortable i don't
0: like it Uh, <laughs> like the wrapped around you and then just like the
1: breathing on hmm. oh hmm. i just imagine like the sighing Ugh. happily like <sighs> hmm. uh. i don't i like that at one point she's like is it my husband no Could no not my husband? husband not my husband I, i'm on the white earth reservation this is not my husband like <laughs> well if you have a listener story you would like to submit to us you can do so by emailing us leftofskeptic at at gmail.com or you can go to our website www.leftofskeptic.com and click the listener story tab to submit a story we just ask that you include your pronouns If you'd like to Mm -hmm. remain anonymous, you totally can. Um, You just have to say, you could enter anything in there. You know, flashy McFlasherson, snazzy McSnazerson, whatever you want to call yourself. And if uh, Brittany can curl herself out of that ball for a second, she could tell you about our social media.
0: Yeah, You (laughs) you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Left of Skeptic or on Facebook at Left of Skeptic Podcast.
1: Well, this was a great Spooky Wednesday. A lot of different themes for us.
0: Yeah. We had aliens. We had a disappearing town. And uh, we had just the grossest listener
1: story we've had so far. (laughs) And thank you, Anne-Marie, for that. Well, I guess with that, we'll just see y'all next Spooky Wednesday. See y'all next Spooky
0: Wednesday. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye.